Book Two, Chapter Two, Part Two of *The Beautiful and Damned* by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Triumph of Lethargy. Anthony found his wife deep in the porch hammock, voluptuously engaged with a lemonade and a tomato sandwich, and carrying on an apparently cheery conversation with Tana upon one of Tana's complicated themes. In uh, my country, Anthony recognized his invariable preface, all time peoples eat rice because haven't got, cannot eat what no have got. Had his nationality not been desperately apparent, one would have thought he had acquired his knowledge of his native land from American primary school geographies. When the Oriental had been squelched and dismissed to the kitchen, Anthony turned questioningly to Gloria. It's all right, she announced, smiling broadly. And it surprised me more than it does you. There's no doubt. None. Couldn't be. They rejoiced happily, gay again with reborn irresponsibility. Then he told her of his opportunity to go abroad, and that he was almost ashamed to reject it. What do you think? Just tell me frankly. Why, Anthony! Her eyes were startled. Do you want to go? Without me? His face fell, yet he knew, with his wife's question, that it was too late. Her arms, sweet and strangling, were around him, for he had made all such choices back in that room in the plaza the year before. This was an anachronism from an age of such dreams. Gloria, he lied in a great burst of comprehension, of course I don't. I was thinking you might go as a nurse or something." He wondered dully if his grandfather would consider this. As she smiled, he realized again how beautiful she was, a gorgeous girl of miraculous freshness and sheerly honorable eyes. She embraced his suggestion with luxurious intensity, holding it aloft like a sun of her own making and basking in its beams. She strung together an amazing synopsis for an extravaganza of martial adventure. After supper, surfeited with the subject, she yawned. She wanted not to talk but only to read Penrod, stretched upon the lounge until at midnight she fell asleep. But Anthony, after he had carried her romantically up the stairs, stayed awake to brood upon the day, vaguely angry with her, vaguely dissatisfied. What am I going to do?" he began at breakfast. Here we've been married a year, and we've just worried around without even being efficient people of leisure. Yes, you ought to do something, she admitted, being in an agreeable and loquacious humor. This was not the first of these discussions, but, as they usually developed, Anthony in the role of protagonist, she had come to avoid them. It's not that I have any moral compunctions about work," he continued. But Grandpa may die tomorrow, and he may live for ten years. Meanwhile, we're living above our income, and all we've got to show for it is a farmer's car and a few clothes. We keep an apartment that we've only lived in three months, and a little old house way off in nowhere. We're frequently bored, and yet we won't make any effort to know anyone except the same crowd who drift around California all summer, 
wearing sport clothes and waiting for their families to die. "'How you've changed,' remarked Gloria. "'Once you told me you didn't see why an American couldn't loaf gracefully.' "'Well, damn it, I wasn't married. And the old mind was working at top speed, and now it's going round and round like a cogwheel with nothing to catch it. As a matter of fact, I think that if I hadn't met you, I would have done something. But you make leisure so subtly attractive. Oh, it's all my fault. I didn't mean that, and you know I didn't. But here I'm almost twenty-seven, and—oh, she interrupted in vexation, you make me tired, talking as though I were objecting or hindering you. I was just discussing it, Gloria. Can't I discuss— I should think you'd be strong enough to settle something with you without your own problems without coming to me. You talk a lot about going to work. I could use more money very easily, but I'm not complaining. Whether you work or not, I love you." Her last words were gentle as fine snow upon hard ground, but for the moment neither was attending to the other. They were each engaged in polishing and perfecting his own attitude. I have worked, some." This, by Anthony, was an imprudent bringing up of raw reserves. Gloria laughed, torn between delight and derision. She resented his sophistry, as at the same time she admired his nonchalance. She would never blame him for being the ineffectual idler so long as he did it sincerely, from the attitude that nothing much was worth doing. "'Work!' she scoffed. "'Oh, you sad bird!' You bluffer! Work! That means a great arranging of the desk and the lights, a great sharpening of pencils, and Gloria, don't sing, and please keep that damn Tana away from me, and let me read you my opening sentence, and I won't be through for a long time, Gloria, so don't stay up for me, and a tremendous consumption of tea or coffee. And that's all. In just about an hour I hear the old pencil stop scratching and look over, You've got out a book and you're looking up something. Then you're reading. Then yawns, then bed, and a great tossing about because you're all full of caffeine and can't sleep. Two weeks later, the whole performance over again." With much difficulty, Anthony retained a scanty breech-cloud of dignity. Now that's a slight exaggeration. You know darn well I sold an essay to the Florentine and it attracted a lot of attention, considering the circulation of the Florentine. And what's more, Gloria, you know I sat up till five o'clock in the morning finishing it." She lapsed into silence, giving him rope. And if he had not hanged himself, he had certainly come to the end of it. "'At least,' he concluded feebly, "'I'm perfectly willing to be a war correspondent.' But so was Gloria. They were both willing, anxious, they assured each other of it. The evening ended on a note of tremendous sentiment, the majesty of leisure, the ill-health of Adam Patch, love at any cost. "'Anthony!' she called over the banister one afternoon a week later. "'There's someone at the door!' Anthony, who had been lolling in the hammock on the sun-speckled south porch, strolled around to the front of the house. A foreign car, large and impressive, crouched like an immense and saturnine bug at the foot of the path. A man in a soft pongee suit, with cap to match, hailed him. 
Hello, Patch. Ran over to call on you. It was Bleakman. As always, infinitesimally improved, of subtler intonation, of more convincing ease. I'm awfully glad you did. Anthony raised his voice to a vine-covered window. Gloria! We've got a visitor! I'm in the tub! wailed Gloria politely. With a smile the two men acknowledged the triumph of her alibi. She'll be down. Come round here on the side porch. Like a drink? Gloria's always in the tub, good third of every day. Pity she doesn't live on the sound. Can't afford it. As coming from Adam Patch's grandson, Bleakman took this as a form of pleasantry. After fifteen minutes filled with estimable brilliancies, Gloria appeared, fresh and starched yellow, bringing atmosphere and an increase of vitality. "'I want to be a successful sensation in the movies,' she announced. "'I hear that Mary Pickford makes a million dollars annually.' "'You could, you know,' said Bleakman. I think you'd film very well. Would you let me, Anthony, if I only play unsophisticated roles?" As the conversation continued in stilted commas, Anthony wondered that to him and Bleakman both this girl had once been the most stimulating, the most tonic personality they had ever known. And now the three sat like over-oiled machines, without conflict, without fear, without elation heavily enameled little figures, secure beyond enjoyment, in a world where death and war, dull emotion and noble savagery were covering a continent with the smoke of terror. In a moment he would call Tana and they would pour into themselves a gay and delicate poison which would restore them momentarily to the pleasurable excitement of childhood, when every face in a crowd had carried its suggestion of splendid and significant transactions taking place somewhere, to some magnificent and illimitable purpose. Life was no more than this summer afternoon, a faint wind stirring the lace collar of Gloria's dress, the slow-baking drowsiness of the veranda. Intolerably unmoved they all seemed, removed from any romantic imminency of action. Even glorious beauty needed wild emotions, needed poignancy, needed death. "'Any day next week,' Bleakman was saying to Gloria. "'Here, take this card. What they do is to give you a test of about three hundred feet of film, and they can tell pretty accurately from that.' "'How about Wednesday?' "'Wednesday's fine. Just phone me and I'll go around with you.' He was on his feet, shaking hands briskly. Then his car was a wraith of dust down the road. Anthony turned to his wife in bewilderment. "'Why, Gloria!' "'You don't mind if I have a trial, Anthony. Just a trial. I've got to go to town Wednesday anyhow.' "'But it's so silly. You don't want to go into the movies, moon around a studio all day with a lot of cheap chorus people?' "'A lot of mooning around Mary Pickford does.' Everybody isn't a Mary Pickford. Well, I can't see how you'd object to my trying. I do, though. I hate actors. Oh, you make me tired. Do you imagine I have a very thrilling time dozing on this damn porch? You wouldn't mind if you loved me. Of course I love you, she said impatiently, making out a quick case for herself. 
It's just because I do that I hate to see you go to pieces by just lying around and saying you ought to work. Perhaps if I did go into this for a while, it'd stir you up so you'd do something. It's just your craving for excitement, that's all it is. Maybe it is. It's a perfectly natural craving, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you one thing. If you go to the movies, I'm going to Europe. Well, go on then. I'm not stopping you." To show she was not stopping him, she melted into melancholy tears. Together they marshaled the armies of sentiment—words, kisses, endearments, self-reproaches. They attained nothing. Inevitably they attained nothing. Finally, in a burst of gargantuan emotion, each of them sat down and wrote a letter. Anthony's was to his grandfather. Gloria's was to Joseph Bleakman. It was a triumph of lethargy. One day early in July, Anthony, returned from an afternoon in New York, called upstairs to Gloria. Receiving no answer, he guessed she was asleep, and so went into the pantry for one of the little sandwiches that were always prepared for them. He found Tana seated at the kitchen table before a miscellaneous assortment of odds and ends, cigar boxes, knives, pencils, the tops of cans, and some scraps of paper covered with elaborate figures and diagrams. "'What the devil you doing?' demanded Anthony curiously. Tana politely grinned. "'I show you,' he exclaimed enthusiastically. "'I tell. You making a doghouse?' "'No, sir,' Tana grinned again. "'Make typewriter.' "'Typewriter?' Yes, sir. I think, oh, all the time I think, lie in bed, think about typewriter. So you thought you'd make one, eh? Wait, I tell. Anthony, munching a sandwich, leaned leisurely against the sink. Tana opened and closed his mouth several times, as though testing its capacity for action. Then with a rush he began. I been think typewriter has, oh, many, 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 many thing. Oh, many, 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 many. Many keys, I see. No? Yes, key. Many, 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 many letter. Like so. A, B, C. Yes, you're right. Wait, I tell. He screwed his face up in a tremendous effort to express himself. I been think many words in same like I-N-G. You bet, a whole raft of them. So I make typewriter quick, not so many letter. That's a great idea, Tana. Save time. You'll make a fortune. Press one key and there's ing. Hope you work it out." Tana laughed disparagingly. Wait, I tell. Where's Mrs. Patch? She out. Wait, I tell. Again he screwed up his face for action. My typewriter. Where is she? Here, I make. He pointed to the miscellany of junk on the table. I mean Mrs. Patch. She out, Tana reassured him. She be back five o'clock, she say. Down in the village? No, went off before lunch. She go Mr. Bleakman. Anthony started. Went out with Mr. Bleakman? She be back five. 
Without a word, Anthony left the kitchen with Tana's disconsolate, I tell, trailing after him. So this was Gloria's idea of excitement, by God! His fists were clenched. Within a moment he had worked himself up to a tremendous pitch of indignation. He went to the door and looked out. There was no car in sight, and his watch stood at four minutes of five. With furious energy he dashed down to the end of the path. As far as the bend of the road a mile off he could see no car. Except! But it was a farmer's flivver. Then, in an undignified pursuit of dignity, he rushed back to the shelter of the house as quickly as he had rushed out. Pacing up and down the living-room, he began an angry rehearsal of the speech he would make to her when she came in. "'So this is love,' he would begin. Or, no, it sounded too much like the popular phrase, so this is Paris. He must be dignified, hurt, grieved. Anyhow. So, this is what you do when I have to go up and trot all day around the hot city on business. No wonder I can't write. No wonder I don't dare let you out of my sight." He was expanding now, warming to his subject. "'I'll tell you,' he continued. "'I'll tell you—' He paused, catching a familiar ring in the words, then he realized it was Tana's, "'I tell!' Yet Anthony neither laughed nor seemed absurd to himself. To his frantic imagination it was already six, seven, eight and she was never coming. Bleakman, finding her bored and unhappy, had persuaded her to go to California with him. There was a great to-do out in front, a joyous, "'Yo-ho, Anthony!' and he rose trembling, weakly happy to see her fluttering up the path. Bleakman was following, cap in hand. "'Dearest!' she cried. "'We've been for the best jaunt all over New York State.' I'll have to be starting home," said Bleakman, almost immediately. Wish you'd both been here when I came. I'm sorry I wasn't," answered Anthony dryly. When he had departed, Anthony hesitated. The fear was gone from his heart, yet he felt that some protest was ethically apropos. Gloria resolved his uncertainty. I knew you wouldn't mind. He came just before lunch and said he had to go to Garrison on business, and wouldn't I go with him? He looks so lonesome, Anthony, and I drove his car all the way." Listlessly Anthony dropped into a chair, his mind tired, tired with nothing, tired with everything, with the world's weight he had never chosen to bear. He was ineffectual and vaguely helpless here, as he had always been one of those personalities who, in spite of all their words, are inarticulate. He seemed to have inherited only the vast tradition of human failure, that and the sense of death. "'I suppose I don't care,' he answered. "'One must be broad about these things, and Gloria, being young, being beautiful, must have reasonable privileges. Yet it wearied him that he failed to understand.' Winter. She rolled over on her back and lay still for a moment in the great bed, watching the February sun suffer one last attenuated refinement in its passage through the leaded panes into the room. For a time she had no accurate sense of her whereabouts or of the events of the day before, or the day before that. 
Then, like a suspended pendulum, memory began to beat out its story, releasing with each swing a burden quota of time until her life was given back to her. She could hear now Anthony's troubled breathing beside her. She could smell whiskey and cigarette smoke. She noticed that she lacked complete muscular control. When she moved it was not a sinuous motion with the resultant strain distributed easily over her body. It was a tremendous effort of her nervous system, as though each time she were hypnotizing herself into performing an impossible action. She was in the bathroom, brushing her teeth to get rid of that intolerable taste, then back by the bedside listening to the rattle of Bound's key in the outer door. "'Wake up, Anthony,' she said sharply. She climbed into bed beside him and closed her eyes. Almost the last thing she remembered was a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Lacey. Mrs. Lacey had said, "'Sure you don't want us to get you a taxi?' And Anthony had replied that he guessed they could walk over to Fifth all right. Then they had both attempted, imprudently, to bow, and collapsed absurdly into a battalion of empty milk-bottles just outside the door. There must have been two dozen milk-bottles standing open-mouthed in the dark. She could conceive of no plausible explanation of those milk-bottles. Perhaps they had been attracted by the singing in the Lacey House, and had hurried over agape with wonder to see the fun. Well, they'd had the worst of it, though it seemed that she and Anthony never would get up, the perverse things rolled so. Still, they had found a taxi. "'My meat is broken, and it'll cost you a dollar and a half to get home,' said the taxi-driver. "'Well,' said Anthony, "'I'm young Packy McFarlane, and if you'll come down here, I'll beat you till you can't stand up.' At that point the man had driven off without them. They must have found another taxi, for they were in the apartment. "'What time is it?' Anthony was sitting up in bed, staring at her with owlish precision. This was obviously a rhetorical question. Gloria could think of no reason why she should be expected to know the time. "'Golly, I feel like the devil,' muttered Anthony dispassionately. Relaxing, he tumbled back upon his pillow. "'Bring on your grim reaper.' "'Anthony, how'd we finally get home last night?' "'Taxi?' "'Oh.' Then, after a pause, did you put me to bed? I don't know. Seems to me you put me to bed. What day is it? Tuesday? Tuesday. I hope so. If it's Wednesday, I've got to start work at that idiotic place. Supposed to be down at nine or some such ungodly hour. Ask Bounds, suggested Gloria feebly. Bounds! Sprightly, sober a voice from a world that it seemed in the past two days they had left forever, Bound sprang in short steps down the hall and appeared in the half-darkness of the door. "'What day, Bounds?' "'February the twenty-second, I think, sir.' "'I mean day of the week.' "'Tuesday, sir.' "'Thanks.' After a pause, "'Are you ready for breakfast, sir?' "'Yes, and Bounds,' Before you get it, will you make a pitcher of water and set it here beside the bed? I'm a little thirsty. Yes, sir. Bounds retreated in sober dignity down the hallway. 
Lincoln's birthday, affirmed Anthony without enthusiasm. Or St. Valentine's or somebody's. When did we start in this insane party? Sunday night? After prayers, he suggested sardonically. We raced all over town in those hansoms, and Maury sat up with his driver, don't you remember? Then we came home, and he tried to cook some bacon, came out of the pantry with a few blackened remains, insisting it was fried to the proverbial crisp. Both of them laughed, spontaneously, but with some difficulty, and, lying there side by side, reviewed the chain of events that had ended in this rusty and chaotic dawn. They had been in New York for almost four months, since the country had grown too cool in late October. They had given up California this year, partly because of lack of funds, partly with the idea of going abroad should this interminable war, persisting now into its second year, end during the winter. Of late their income had lost elasticity. No longer did it stretch to cover gay whims and pleasant extravagances, and Anthony had spent many puzzled and unsatisfactory hours over a densely figured pad, making remarkable budgets that left huge margins for amusements, trips, etc., and trying to apportion, even approximately, their past expenditures. He remembered a time when in going on a party with his two best friends, he and Mari had invariably paid more than their share of the expenses. They would buy the tickets for the theatre, or squabble between themselves for the dinner check. It had seemed fitting. Dick, with his naivete and his astonishing fund of information about himself, had been a diverting, almost juvenile figure, court gesture to their royalty. But this was no longer true. It was Dick who always had money. It was Anthony who entertained within limitations, always accepting occasional wild, wine-inspired, check-cashing parties. And it was Anthony who was solemn about it next morning and told the scornful and disgusted Gloria that they'd have to be more careful next time. In the next two years since the publication of The Demon Lover, Dick had made over $25,000, most of it lately, when the reward of the author of fiction had begun to swell unprecedentedly as a result of the voracious hunger of the motion pictures for plots. He received $700 for every story at that time a large emolument for such a young man, he was not quite thirty, and for every one that contained enough action, kissing, shooting, and sacrificing for the movies, he obtained an additional thousand. His stories varied. There was a measure of vitality and a sort of instinctive in all of them, but none attained the personality of the demon lover, and there were several that Anthony considered downright cheap. These, Dick explained severely, were to widen his audience. Wasn't it true that men who had attained real permanence from Shakespeare to Mark Twain had appealed to the many as well as to the elect? Though Anthony and Mari disagreed, Gloria told him to go ahead and make as much money as he could. That was the only thing that counted anyhow. Mari, a little stouter, faintly mellower, and more complacent, had gone to work in Philadelphia. He came to New York once or twice a month and on such occasions the four of them traveled the popular routes from dinner to the theater, thence to the frolic, or perhaps, at the urging of the ever-curious Gloria, to one of the cellars of Greenwich Village, 
notorious through the furious but short-lived vogue of the new poetry movement. In January, after many monologues directed at his reticent wife, Anthony determined to get something to do, for the winter at any rate. He wanted to please his grandfather, and even, in a measure, to see how he liked it himself. He discovered during several tentative semi-social calls that employers were not interested in a young man who was only going to try it for a few months or so. As the grandson of Adam Patch, he was received everywhere with marked courtesy. But the old man was a back number now. The heyday of his fame, as first an oppressor and then an uplifter of the people, had been during the twenty years preceding his retirement. Anthony even found several of the younger men who were under the impression that Adam Patch had been dead for some years. Eventually, Anthony went to his grandfather and asked his advice, which turned out to be that he should enter the bond business as a salesman, a tedious suggestion to Anthony, but one that in the end he determined to follow. Sheer money in deft manipulation had fascinations under all circumstances, while almost any side of manufacturing would be insufferably dull. He considered newspaper work, but decided that the hours were not ordered for a married man. And he lingered over pleasant fancies of himself either as editor of a brilliant weekly of opinion, an American Mercure de France, or as scintillant producer of satiric comedy and Parisian musical review. However, the approaches to these latter guilds seemed to be guarded by professional secrets. Men drifted into them by the devious highways of writing and acting. It was palpably impossible to get on a magazine unless you had been on one before. So, in the end, he entered, by way of his grandfather's letter, that sanctum Americanum where sat the president of Wilson, Hymer and Hardy at his clear desk, and issued therefrom employed. He was to begin work on the 23rd of February. In tribute to the momentous occasion, this two-day revel had been planned, since, he said, after he began working, he'd have to get to bed early during the week. Maury Noble had arrived from Philadelphia on a trip that had to do with seeing some man in Wall Street, whom, incidentally, he failed to see, and Richard Caramel had been half persuaded, half tricked into joining them. They had condescended to a wet and fashionable wedding on Monday afternoon, and in the evening had occurred the denouement. Gloria, going beyond her accustomed limit of four precisely timed cocktails, led them on as gay and joyous a bacchanal as they had ever known, disclosing an astonishing knowledge of ballet steps, and singing songs which she confessed had been taught her by her cook when she was innocent and seventeen. She repeated these by request at intervals throughout the evening, with such frank conviviality that Anthony, far from being annoyed, was gratified at this fresh source of entertainment. The occasion was memorable in other ways. A long conversation between Mari and a defunct crab, which he was dragging around on the end of a string, as to whether the crab was fully conversant with the applications of the binomial theorem and the aforementioned race in two handsome cabs with the sedate and impressive shadows of Fifth Avenue for audience, ending in a labyrinthine escape into the darkness of Central Park. Finally, Anthony and Gloria had paid a call on some wild young married couple, the Lacys, and collapsed in the empty milk bottles. Morning now. Theirs to add up the checks cashed here and there in clubs, stores, restaurants. 
theirs to air the dank staleness of wine and cigarettes out of the tall blue front room, to pick up the broken glass and brush at the stained fabric of chairs and sofas, to give bounds suits and dresses for the cleaners, finally to take their smothery, half-feverish bodies and faded, depressed spirits out into the chill air of February, that life might go on and Wilson, Heimer and Hardy obtain the services of a vigorous man at nine next morning. "'Do you remember?' called Anthony from the bathroom. "'When Maury got out at the corner of 110th Street and acted as a traffic cop, beckoning cars forward and motioning them back, they must have thought he was a private detective.' After each reminiscence they both laughed inordinately, their overwrought nerves responding as acutely and janglingly to mirth as to depression. Gloria at the mirror was wondering at the splendid color and freshness of her face, it seemed that she had never looked so well, though her stomach hurt her and her head was aching furiously. The day passed slowly. Anthony, riding in a taxi to his brokers to borrow money on a bond, found that he had only two dollars in his pocket. The fare would cost all of that, but he felt that on this particular afternoon he could not have endured the subway. When the taximeter reached his limit he must get out and walk. With this his mind drifted off into one of its characteristic daydreams. In this dream he discovered that the meter was going too fast, the driver had dishonestly adjusted it. Calmly he reached his destination and then nonchalantly handed the man what he justly owed him. The man showed fight, but almost before his hands were up Anthony had knocked him down with one terrific blow. And when he rose, Anthony quickly sidestepped and floored him definitely with a crack in the temple. He was in court now. The judge had fined him five dollars and he had no money. Would the court take his check? Ah, but the court did not know him. Well, he could identify himself by having them call his apartment. They did so. Yes, it was Mrs. Anthony Patch speaking, but how did she know that this man was her husband? How could she know? Let the police sergeant ask her if she remembered the milk bottles. He leaned forward hurriedly and tapped at the glass. The taxi was only at Brooklyn Bridge, but the meter showed a dollar and eighty cents, and Anthony would never have omitted the ten percent tip. Later in the afternoon he returned to the apartment. Gloria had also been out, shopping, and was asleep, curled in a corner of the sofa with her purchase locked securely in her arms. Her face was as untroubled as a little girl's, and the bundle that she pressed tightly to her bosom was a child's doll, a profound and infinitely healing balm to her disturbed and childish heart. DESTINY It was with this party, more especially with Gloria's part in it, that a decided change began to come over their way of living. The magnificent attitude of not giving a damn altered overnight. From being a mere tenant of Gloria's, it became the entire solace and justification for what they chose to do and what consequence it brought. Not to be sorry, not to lose one cry of regret, to live according to a clear code of honor toward each other and to seek the moment's happiness as fervently and persistently as possible. "'No one cares about us but ourselves, Anthony,' she said one day. It'd be ridiculous for me to go about pretending I felt any obligations toward the world, and as for worrying about what people think about me, I simply don't, that's all. 
Since I was a little girl in dancing school, I've been criticized by the mothers of all the little girls who weren't as popular as I was, and I've always looked on criticism as a sort of envious tribute." This was because of a party in the Bull Mitch one night, where Constance Merriam had seen her as one of a highly stimulated party of four. Constance Merriam, as an old-school friend, had gone to the trouble of inviting her to lunch next day in order to inform her how terrible it was. "'I told her I couldn't see it,' Gloria told Anthony. "'Eric Merriam is a sort of sublimated Percy Wolcott. You remember that man in Hot Springs I told you about? His idea of respecting Constance is to leave her at home with her sewing and her baby and her book, and such innocuous amusements, whenever he's going on a party that promises to be anything but deathly dull.' "'Did you tell her that?' "'I certainly did.' and I told her that what she really objected to was that I was having a better time than she was." Anthony applauded her. He was tremendously proud of Gloria, proud that she never failed to eclipse whatever other women might be in the party, proud that men were always glad to revel with her in great rowdy groups, without any attempt to do more than enjoy her beauty and the warmth of her vitality. These parties gradually became their chief source of entertainment. Still in love, still enormously interested in each other, they yet found as spring drew near that staying at home in the evening palled on them. Books were unreal. The old magic of being alone had long since vanished. Instead, they preferred to be bored by a stupid musical comedy, or to go to dinner with the most uninteresting of their acquaintances, so long as there would be enough cocktails to keep the conversation from becoming utterly intolerable. A scattering of younger married people who had been their friends in school or college, as well as a varied assortment of single men, began to think instinctively of them whenever color and excitement were needed, so there was scarcely a day without its phone call. It's, "'Wonder what you were doing this evening?' Wives, as a rule, were afraid of Gloria. Her facile attainment of the center of the stage, her innocent but nevertheless disturbing way of becoming a favorite with husbands, these things drove them instinctively into an attitude of profound distrust, heightened by the fact that Gloria was largely unresponsive to any intimacy shown her by a woman. On the appointed Wednesday in February, Anthony had gone to the imposing offices of Wilson, Hymer, and Hardy, and listened to many vague instructions delivered by an energetic young man of about his own age, named Collar, who wore a defiant yellow pompadour, and, in announcing himself as an assistant secretary, gave the impression that it was a tribute to exceptional ability. "'There's two kinds of men here you'll find,' he said. "'There's the man who gets to be an assistant secretary or treasurer, gets his name on our folder here before he's thirty, and there's the man who gets his name there at forty-five. The man who gets his name there at forty-five stays there the rest of his life." "'How about the man who gets it there at thirty? inquired Anthony politely. "'Why, he gets up here, you see.' He pointed to a list of assistant vice-presidents upon the folder. "'Or maybe he gets to be president or secretary or treasurer.' "'And what about these over here?' "'Those? Oh, those are the trustees the men with capital. I see. Now some people, continued Collar, think that whether a man gets started early or late depends on whether he's got a college education. But they're wrong. I see. 
I had one. I was Buckley, class of 1911, but when I came down to the street I soon found that the things that would help me here weren't the fancy things I learned in college. In fact, I had to get a lot of fancy stuff out of my head." Anthony could not help wondering what possible fancy stuff he had learned at Buckley in 1911. An irrepressible idea that it was some sort of needlework recurred to him throughout the rest of the conversation. "'See that fellow over there?' Collar pointed to a youngish-looking man with handsome gray hair, sitting at a desk inside a mahogany railing. "'That's Mr. Ellinger, the first vice-president. Been everywhere, seen everything. Got a fine education.' In vain did Anthony try to open his mind to the romance of finance. He could think of Mr. Ellinger only as one of the buyers of the handsome leather sets of Thackeray, Balzac, Hugo, and Gibbon that lined the walls of the big bookstores. Through the damp and uninspiring month of March he was prepared for salesmanship. Lacking enthusiasm, he was capable of viewing the turmoil and bustle that surrounded him only as a fruitless circumambient striving toward an incomprehensible goal tangibly evidenced only by the rival mansions of Mr. Frick and Mr. Carnegie on Fifth Avenue. That these portentous vice-presidents and trustees should be actually the fathers of the best men he had known at Harvard seemed to him incongruous. He ate in an employee's lunchroom upstairs with an uneasy suspicion that he was being uplifted, wondering through that first week if the dozens of young clerks, some of them alert and immaculate and just out of college, lived in flamboyant hope of crowding onto that narrow slip of cardboard before the catastrophic thirties. The conversation that interwove with the pattern of the day's work was all much of a piece. One discussed how Mr. Wilson had made his money, what method Mr. Hymer had employed, and the means resorted to by Mr. Hardy. One related age-old but eternally breathless anecdotes of the fortune stumbled on precipitously in the street by a butcher or a bartender, or a darn messenger boy by golly, and then one talked of the current gambles. And whether it was best to go out for a hundred thousand a year, or be content with twenty. During the preceding year one of the assistant secretaries had invested all his savings in Bethlehem Steel. The story of his spectacular magnificence of his haughty resignation in January, and of the triumphal palace he was now building in California was the favorite office subject. The man's very name had acquired a magic significance, symbolizing as he did the aspirations of all good Americans. Anecdotes were told about him. How one of the vice-presidents had advised him to sell by golly, but he had hung on, even bought on margin. And now look where he is! Such, obviously, was the stuff of life, a dizzy triumph dazzling the eyes of all of them, a gypsy siren to content them with meager wage and with the arithmetical improbability of their eventual success. To Anthony the notion became appalling. He felt that to succeed here the idea of success must grasp and limit his mind. It seemed to him that the essential element in these men at the top was their faith that their affairs were the very core of life all other things being equal, self-assurance and opportunism won out over technical knowledge. It was obvious that the more expert work went on near the bottom, so with appropriate efficiency the technical experts were kept there. 
His determination to stay in at night during the week did not survive, and a good half of the time he came to work with a splitting, sickish headache, and the crowded horror of the morning subway ringing in his ears like an echo of hell. Then, abruptly, he quit. He had remained in bed all one Monday, and late in the evening, overcome by one of those attacks of moody despair to which he periodically succumbed, he wrote and mailed a letter to Mr. Wilson, confessing that he considered himself ill-adapted to the work. Gloria, coming in from the theatre with Richard Caramel, found him on the lounge, silently staring at the high ceiling, more depressed and discouraged than he had been at any time since their marriage. She wanted him to whine. If he had, she would have approached him bitterly, for she was not a little annoyed, but he only lay there so utterly miserable that she felt sorry for him, and kneeling down she stroked his head, saying how little it mattered, how little anything mattered so long as they loved each other. It was like their first year, and Anthony, reacting to her cool hand, to her voice that was soft as breath itself upon his ear, became almost cheerful, and talked with her of his future plans. He even regretted silently, before he went to bed, that he had so hastily mailed his resignation. "'Even when everything seems rotten, you can't trust that judgment,' Gloria had said. "'It's the sum of all your judgments that counts.' In mid-April came a letter from the real estate agent in Marietta, encouraging them to take the gray house for another year at a slightly increased rental, and enclosing a lease made out for their signatures. For a week lease and letter lay carelessly neglected on Anthony's desk. They had no intention of returning to Marietta. They were weary of the place, and had been bored most of the preceding summer. Besides, their car had deteriorated to a rattling mass of hypochondriacal metal, and a new one was financially inadvisable. But because of another wild revel, enduring through four days and participated in, at one time or another, by more than a dozen people, they did sign the lease. To their utter horror they signed it and sent it, and immediately it seemed as though they heard the grey house, drably malevolent at last, licking its white chops and waiting to devour them. "'Anthony, where's that lease?' she called in high alarm one Sunday morning, sick and sober to reality. "'Where did you leave it? It was here!' Then she knew where it was. She remembered the house-party they had planned on the crest of their exuberance. She remembered a room full of men, to whose less exhilarated moments she and Anthony were of no importance, and Anthony's boast of the transcendent merit and seclusion of the grey house, that it was so isolated that it didn't matter how much noise went on there. Then Dick, who had visited them, cried enthusiastically that it was the best little house imaginable, and that they were idiotic not to take it for another summer. It had been easy to work themselves up to a sense of how hot and deserted the city was getting, of how cool and ambrosial were the charms of Marietta. Anthony had picked up the lease and waved it wildly, found Gloria happily acquiescent, and with one last burst of garrulous decision, during which all the men agreed with solemn handshakes that they would come out for a visit. "'Anthony!' she cried. "'We've signed and sent it!' "'What?' "'The lease!' "'What the devil?' "'Oh, Anthony!' There was utter misery in her voice. For the summer, for eternity, 
they had built themselves a prison. It seemed to strike at the last roots of their stability. Anthony thought they might arrange it with the real estate agent. They could no longer afford the double rent, and going to Marietta meant giving up his apartment, his reproachless apartment with the exquisite bath and the rooms for which he had bought his furniture and hangings. It was the closest to a home that he had ever had, familiar with memories of four colorful years. But it was not arranged with a real estate agent, nor was it arranged at all. Dispiritedly, without even any talk of making the best of it, without even Gloria's all-sufficing I don't care, they went back to the house that they now knew heeded neither youth nor love, only those austere and incommunicative memories that they could never share. End of Book Two, Chapter Two, Part Two